Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. You've tuned in to Columbia Calling, your first stop for everything you want to know about Columbia. How and where to invest, where to visit. From the Pacific to the Caribbean, the Andes Mountains to the Amazon jungle, Columbia has a slice of everything. Shooting from the hip, answering the questions that need answering. Here's your host, the journalist and hotelier, Richard McCall, shedding some light on the fashionable South American destination of Columbia. It's that time of the week again, folks, and this is me, your host, Richard McCall, here in Bogota, Colombia, 2,600 meters closer to the stars. And this, would you believe it, is episode 400 of the Columbia Calling podcast. This week's episode is very special. We have Adam Isaacson of the Washington office in Latin America talking about current events in Colombia, so bringing you all up to speed on what's going on. And I'd like to take this moment and say from the bottom of my heart, I am so touched that eight years later, we're still producing a weekly podcast. That's right. I began in late 2013. I don't think anyone listened to the first 150 episodes, but kept on going and somehow, somewhere, traction built up. And so this is a heartfelt thank you to each and every one of you that's downloaded and listened to an episode, to all the interviewees that have been on, uh, of course, many of you, several times. Uh, we should probably remember Kevin Howlett, political analyst for Columbia, who was episode number one all those, way, all those years ago. And of course, thank you to the Patreon supporters out there making this financially, economically viable. Uh, of course, you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash Columbia Calling. And in no small part, this is also due to the impetus and the shot in the arm provided by journalist Emily Hart in Medellin, giving us reporting the newscast every week for around two years now. Uh, a quick point of action, the COP26, the environmental, international environmental meeting is going on in Glasgow. President Duque is there. I'd like to mention also that the Times of London has declared President Duque as the environmental president. That was a quotation. They said the environmental president. Well, let's just remind everyone that this is the same government that has kind of authorized for scientific purposes, fracking. This is the same government that's pushing for the recommencement of glyphosate. That's the uh, poison, the fumigation purposes of the coca cultivations. And, of course, in 2019 and 2020, Colombia holds the, uh, well, doubtable, the, the very doubtful, um, uh, what could you say, title as the most dangerous country in the world with the most deaths, murders of environmental defenders, as reported by Global Witness. And then finally, this government affiliated quite strongly to cattle farming and cattle farming, which leads to deforestation and, of course, the huge amounts of deforestation taking place. So I hardly think that we could say that President Duque is the environmental president. So if this message gets out there anywhere at least to everyone listening to this. Uh, there, are, there is more work to be done. But of course, I think that perhaps the environmental president, and thank you for making me aware of this, is uh, due to the you know, visit by Zach Goldsmith. These things uh, pay off, don't they, over time in politics. But that said, we're going to go over now to Emily Hart and uh, have the news. And I have a thought as well. How would you like patreon subscribers once a month to get you know like an espresso shot uh exclusive uh, i think uh you know uh recording 
via Patreon about culture, politics, society, and so on, curiosities from Colombia. I do it through the platform, the Patreon platform, probably as a, uh, a, a, a you know a recorded uh, segment, myself talking, camera, and so on. I thought about giving little sort of history updates, you know, Jorge Eliese Gaitan, what's going on here, curiosity about some statues, the history, burials, and so on and so forth. I'd love to hear back uh, from you about this. So, of course, tweet us at Columbia Calling, write to us, Calling at gmail.com, write to us through the Patreon um, uh, platform, and any other way you see Facebook as well, we're there too. Anyway, over to Emily Hart with the news, and then back with Adam Isaacson of the Washington office on Latin America talking about his recent trip with Congressman McGovern to Columbia. So thank you again, everyone. Episode 400. Don't go away. I'm Emily Hart, and these are your top stories from Colombia for the week of November 1st, 2021. The International Criminal Court has closed its investigation into the Colombian state for crimes against humanity and war crimes. This week, ICC prosecutor Karim Khan signed a cooperation agreement with President Ivan Duque, in which the court ended its preliminary examination, which had been open since 2004. In the agreement, Duca guaranteed the country's commitment to implement the peace deal with the FARC, as well as the function and independence of the Transitional Justice Court, the HEP, of which Duca has long been a strong critic and which he and his party have made numerous attempts to weaken and reform. Human Rights Watch called the decision to close the investigation premature, wrong and counterproductive, voicing concern that Colombia's institutions would now not do enough to shed light on state crimes against humanity. Sergio Jaramillo, however, the architect of the peace accords, welcomed the news, seeing it as a message of support for national transitional justice institutions. Diego Molano, Minister of Defence, is under fire after evidence emerged that his ministry faked a cyber attack in May, in the middle of the National Paro protests, in an attempt to justify increased surveillance of activists and citizen journalists. Press Freedom Group, The Flip, revealed that what initially appeared to be a cyber attack on the social networks of the ministry and related institutions was actually part of a public relations campaign. After the faked attack, the ministry launched hashtag Colombia es mi verdad, Colombia is my truth, alleging they were under attack but were standing up to protect Colombians by denouncing false information about the national protests, which they called digital terrorism. This came at a time when many were sharing videos and images of state violence and abuse via social media. Cyber patrolling and online surveillance then began to take place, and the flip reports that there was also an expansion of false communication by state entities themselves. Molano has said that the flip's accusations are a disinformation campaign. Meanwhile, President Duque has arrived in Glasgow, Scotland for the UN Climate Conference. Colombia is among the 20 countries most vulnerable to climate change. Although it is not among the top emitters of greenhouse gases, it is key to conservation of biodiversity and of ecosystems which capture greenhouse gases so that they do not reach the atmosphere. 10% of the Amazon rainforest is in Colombian territory. The conference is an opportunity to seek financial resources to support environmental initiatives in Colombia. After last week's capture of alias Otoniel, the country's most wanted drug lord and head of narco-paramilitary structure, the Clan del Golfo, the debate continues as to whether he should be sent to the USA, where he faces drug trafficking charges, or whether he should face justice here in Colombia. In the Colombian justice system, Otoniel has 122 arrest warrants for crimes including massacres, sexual crimes against children and terrorism. In addition, his past is closely linked to the creation and expansion of paramilitarism in Colombia in the late 1990s, on which he could provide key information. The government and ruling party, Centro Democrático, defend the idea that he should leave, while lawyers and victims groups say he should stay and provide justice to his Colombian victims and clarify which state agents helped him to evade capture for so many years. There are fears that he could end up like alias Rogelio, the former head of the narco-mafia Oficina de Envigado, who was extradited and stayed in the US with minimal contributions to the Colombian justice system. While there is no legal obligation to extradite, even when requested, historically Colombia has not been given to refusing extraditions, 
even less so to the US. Diego Molano, Minister of Defense, said last weekend that the extradition process would be initiated. The United States government has issued a statement declaring its new drug policy in Colombia, suggesting a departure from the approach of the previous administration, as well as differences with Colombia's own government policies. Notable by its absence, in the new policy is fumigation with glyphosate, a chemical to eliminate illegal crops, the use of which President Duca had been pushing for. For diplomatic reasons, it will now be difficult to move forward with that strategy. The focus of the new policy is reduction of supply of illegal substances to the US, targeting money laundering, promoting the peace accord, rural development, land formalization, and citizen security. The new US approach is far, however, from declaring an end to the catastrophic policy known as the war on drugs, which has raged for decades. A new report by the World Bank has urged Colombia to address its high level of inequality, saying it is a core constraint to the economic growth and social progress of the country. The report says Colombia has the second highest level of income inequality in Latin America and the Caribbean after Brazil and is the most unequal among members of the OECD. The richest 10% of Colombians earn more than 11 times the income of the poorest 10%. The figure worsened in 2020 due to the pandemic. But coronavirus cases remain steady at around 1,500 new daily cases. Nearly 60% of the country has now had one dose of vaccine, 40% are fully vaccinated. And the UK has taken all remaining countries, including Colombia, off its red list, meaning that the requirement for hotel quarantine at the traveller's own expense is no longer in place. Those were your top stories. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week. And we're back. This is segment three of episode 400. Yes, we've reached the episode 400 of the Columbia Calling podcast. And my very special guest is none other. He needs no introduction. Is Adam Isaacson from WOLA, the Washington Office on Latin America. He's the director for defense oversight. And well, he's a Columbia expert. And we all go to him for our quotes uh, or those journalists <laughs> here. I mean, you are you are the go to guy, you and Sergio Guzman. Uh, so welcome back. <laughs> on the Columbia Calling podcast, Adam. Yeah, you should call my, my colleague Jimenez Sanchez at Wolle, uh, also knows Columbia even better than I do lately. So uh, yeah, she should get more calls. <laughs> in fact, at some point, at some point, I'm going to bring up a quote that she she gave in an good, interview good. Uh, because it really is great. But uh, I, I'm, well, first of all, thank you for coming here and spending some of your valuable time be here. here. Uh, but uh, let's talk about this. Uh, you were just down in Columbia for the first time in, in, a, in a few years, obvious reasons why. October 3rd till 9th, you were here with Congressman, well, Representative Jim McGovern. Uh, and I guess that was quite a revealing uh, trip because you went all over. You were in Cali, so the you know the flashpoint, let's say, of the of the unrest, the the demonstrations. You were in Bogota, of course. You went up to Sumapaz, so sort of the the old pathway along that you know the the, the, the was it the Camino de los Secuestrados, which used right, to right. be up through Sumapaz. But tell us a little bit because I've read your 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 let's say uh, your article that you wrote on your website, the eight points of of this trip. Uh, tell us about it. I mean, why, first of all, Jim McGovern and his interest in Colombia. Let's let's start right there from the very basics. Sure. I mean, Congressman McGovern, we've known since he was a congressional staffer, actually. When I first came to Washington in the mid-90s, it was like, call Jim McGovern and see if you can get blah, 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 blah. You know, it's one of their key allies. And he was a key ally because as a legislative staffer in the 80s for a congressman from Boston, he got tasked I think he always had some interest in Latin America, but he got tasked with doing the congressional investigation of the killing of the Jesuits in El Salvador in 1989. Went down to El Salvador a few times and tried to forget to the bottom of what happened. You know, the, basically the Salvadoran military killed a bunch of priests. Mm. And that, I think, had a really lasting impact on him. And he uh, just had a personal abiding interest in human rights in Latin America, even though representing central and western Massachusetts. There's not a natural tie there. But since then, uh, I'd say Salvador, Cuba, and Colombia have been his main interests. And he's first traveled to Colombia 
with, with WOLA, in fact, but before I worked for WOLA back in 2001 in the early days of Plan Columbia, uh, I think I traveled with him for the first time when I worked at the Center for International Policy, took him down, I think it was 2005 or six. Uh, we've done about eight or nine trips together. He's been there about 12 times. Um, this was his first trip since we went to Cauca and Kali and Bogota back in 2017. Um, it was my first trip um, since the very end of 2019. Um, and I had plans to be back in Colombia for uh, a bunch of meetings and a conference in April of 2020, and it all fell through. So it was, it was just uh, as, as grim, and we'll talk about this, as grim as everything was, it was really good uh, for me to be back. And yeah, we, we were you know, we're with a member of Congress who's like shoehorning his agenda between all the other commitments in Congress. You know, the Democrats have the majority. He chairs the committee right now that decides what gets debated on the floor of Congress and what doesn't. So he's got to be in Washington a lot. So we had like four and a half days on the ground and managed to go to Cali, you know, post Paro, si Paro Nacional Cali down briefly, well, for a day into Cauca, mainly Santander de Chiquilichao. Then, yeah, as you said, up, up uh, most of a day in the Sumapas region south of Bogota, and then, you know, about a day and a half of meetings in Bogota, you know, like 18 hours a day, just before dawn to late at night, and uh, myself and Jimena and, and Kim Stanton on his staff trading the interpretation duties Uh uh, which, you know, <laughs> when you're on four hours sleep, isn't as easy as it should be, but it was a, a definitely a successful trip, but a hugely sobering trip. And you mentioned that, that I did a blog entry. We're basically at Walla, we're working on like probably a lot of organizations doing a bigger report on uh, next month is the five-year uh, anniversary of the peace accords. So all our energy is going into that. And all I could muster based on what we just saw on the trip was this brief blog entry. I'm glad it got some, you know, it did get some clicks on, on the web. Um, but yeah, it was just sort of my feelings and impressions more than something that was, you know, cross-referenced and carefully done. Well, I also, I mean, the, the eight points you put, and we'll get into them, but uh I, these are your feelings and your observations, but those of us here, we know it. I mean, this is the truth. And but you, you put it, you put it into, uh, you know, the erudite language and you started with the, <laughs> the territorial pullback. Yeah. Uh, I wonder, is, is that the, the military pulling back from areas? Cause you talk about this cause we, you know, we've got the 2016 peace accord and this is what your colleague, uh, Carolina Jimenez Sanchez said in an interview is Colombia's peace accord is not weak. It's Duque who insists on mm -hmm. weakening it. And then that seems to feed into everything that you saw and observed. Right now. Yeah. When I say a territorial pullback, I guess I mainly do mean the military because the civilian part of the state didn't get to a lot of these areas ever, but soldiers did to some extent police did. And, you know, I'm the farthest you can imagine uh, from a fan of Alvaro Uribe, but during the say Uribe's second term, you did have sort of, and early in, you know, the Santos's first term, you had this sort of high water mark where at least the military was almost everywhere, you know, not the deepest part of the countryside, but Every municipality had some presence. There were checkpoints. There were roadblocks. There were a lot of human rights abuses, obviously, that went along with that. And yes, obviously, the the military was not followed by doctors, teachers, land titlers, agronomists, or or anybody else providing you know civilian government support. But the upshot of that was that the number or the amount of territory twelve years ago where you could drive around and see guerrilla banners left up or, you know, uh, Gulf Clan uh, paraphernalia up on the walls, where it was very clear that they had flyers up on, you know, the public places, like showing what the rules of conduct were. Uh, that sort of uh, obvious territorial control and complete lack of any probability of the military even coming through and taking down one of those banners, that was less, uh, significantly less. There has definitely been a pullback. I think the way I put it in the blog entry was, you know, you're on the main road, you turn off the main road, uh, and then you'll hit sort of the last military checkpoint. And after that, you're behind enemy lines. You're in uh, uh, territory controlled by somebody else. It feels like that last checkpoint is a lot closer to the towns and to the main road than it used to be. 
Um, and I said that and uh, based on the feeling, really, but it's certainly in places like Calca, Catatumbo, the Bajo Calca, I mean, that, that, Tumaco. I mean, that's certainly true. Um, you know, you go a little bit upriver and you're just on your own. Um, and that is more than it was. Um, I think people feel it more, too, because the armed groups are fragmented. I cannot name every armed group in Colombia with at least 200 members now. That used to be easy to do. Um, and in many places, yeah, the territory is disputed or it's weirdly shared. You don't quite know who's in charge. Um, and so if there's no military presence, much less state presence, if there's no military presence, then, uh, you know, that the, the population is going to feel that competition even more. Uh, the pullback uh, may in part be because uh, Colombia has less money. Uh, Colombia does not have a tradition of uh, taxing its wealthiest citizens. Uh, and so when the price of commodities goes down, uh, its royalties go down and it has less money to spend on social welfare, but also on things like helicopters. And, you know, the pandemic made that even deeper. Uh, early last year, it was being reported that, you know, Colombia's army has 42 Blackhawk helicopters, fourth largest fleet in the world, but only 15 of those 42 were even functioning. If that's the state the army is in, imagine what state other ministries of the government are in. You sort of have almost a simulacrum of government in a lot of areas. And, and that was a very strong uh, uh, impression that I had from, from our brief visit. And, and was, was this, this resonated most in the sort of Santander de Quilichao area? Sort of yeah, absolutely. I mean, Northern Cauca, where you have three dissident groups competing, you've got the ELN occasionally and people claiming to be narcos and mafias. Uh, and really, once you get in from the Pan-American Highway, uh, you don't see much state presence anymore at all. And, you know, as you said, you sort of uh, Uribe... Uh, Uribe's final, or you know, his his tenure, Santos's tenure, we did see an extension of the military of the state forces on the main sort of areas of communication. But beyond that, yeah. and so we're now saying, of course, of course, and COVID related, and uh, you know, economy related, there's been this pullback. It's this is a concern for a country that's trying to pitch itself for international investment. Uh, of mm -hmm. course, all the different extractive policies uh, that it has, uh, you, you sort of get this feeling. You, know, you you get off the road, as you say, beyond Santander de Quilichao, and, and I guess four guys with semi-automatic weapons are the latest uh, criminal armed group. You, as you say, you just no, right, you don't right. know. They're not on a. They're not in an encampment out in the rural zone no. somewhere. They are mixed in with the population, often not in uniform. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Makes that very, very difficult. So, how can you possibly, you know, put them on the same level of importance with whom to negotiate as someone who's got two hundred to someone who's got four? I mean, <laughs> I mean, that's the four, truth. but he might be part of a larger network, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah. And of course, it's all strategic. And 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 I wanted to uh, bring it in. Is it's you did mention, and it's I jumping a few points, but you did mention that. The, uh, uh, these armed groups, the illegal armed groups, seem or appear less to have any sort of skirmishes or confrontations with the military or the state security right, forces. Right. It's more versus civilians. Like, explain this a bit, because you, we, we expect, and it's the way the government packages it, of, of you know this new conflict mm -hmm. uh, as a, it's the new universal enemy. But if they're not combating one another how is this you know in their in their terminology how does this work right i mean they, they'll combat these groups may combat each other from time to time although they prefer again to go after civilians uh in, in the area they control uh, going after anybody who's perceived as collaborating with the other groups but you know if you're a group with I don't know, three, 400 members uh, active in one or two regions, no real national command. Maybe you're part, loosely part of another network like uh, Gentil Duarte's network or something mm. like that. But you're basically small and you can't call in reinforcements very quickly. Why in God's name would you attack the armed forces? Why would you put your head up there and say, hey, here I am, come get me? I mean, yeah. Of course, they do attack the armed forces from time to time, um, often to make a point, uh, maybe to say you're not welcome here, we don't want you here, or to maybe retribution for a drug seizure. It could be any local thing usually, but not often enough to 
like end up like say Guacho. Remember Guacho in 2018, the head of the the Sinistera Front in in uh, Nariño Department. He was a former guerrilla. He led this guerrilla splinter, uh, one of the early dissident groups in in the southwest corner of the country. Guacho attacked the military often. He went to Gua- to Ecuador and attacked the military there. He kidnapped and killed three Ecuadorian journalists, which was a you know the big story of the year in Ecuador that year. Um, he drew all this attention to himself and he was dead by the end of 2018. Um, you can't fight the military if you provoke the military. Mm-hmm. It makes so much more sense to operate the way organized crime has pretty much always operated in Colombia, but more so lately, which is keep a low profile, maintain your territorial control, make your deals that you have to make the deal with. And for the local not just military and police, but prosecutors, mayors, governors, anybody else, uh, plata o plomo. You just make sure they feel threatened by you and otherwise you corrupt and penetrate them. Um, and that's why, you know, yeah, like I said, every couple of weeks, you'll see a big attack on a military target. You'll see, a, you know, a, a landmine field activated or, um, <clears throat> you know, an ambush or a car bomb goes off somewhere and you got several different groups doing this, you know, on a regular basis. But it's not at a very intense level right now. And in what you see far more often, I think, are threats and attacks on civilians, on your local social leaders, on politicians they don't get along with. Um, anybody who's an independent voice uh, is far more unsafe right now. And unfortunately, they're getting it from all sides because frankly, I find the security forces lately are attacking civilians or at least confronting, maybe that's a better word, confronting civilians more often, uh, or at least nearly as often as they're confronting the armed groups. This is, this is something, this is something for further on. Uh, would you also sure. say uh, that the, there's between certain groups and, uh, you know, state forces in, in regions, and I don't know, strategic reasons, there's a tacit sort of agreement, you know, that the, the corruption allows for, well, just let them pass. Uh, or they look out for one another. Yeah, I mean, you see this, uh, particularly on key corridors uh, for getting out, you know, drugs or, or you know, any place there's illicit mining. Uh, rivers like the Atrato or the Naya or the Nikai or all the ones in in Nariño, and certainly all the trochas going into across into the Venezuelan border. Uh, the boats. The go fast boats fully laden uh, seem to get past all the checkpoints quite easily. Um, And people cross back and forth into Venezuela without uh, their cargo getting seized uh, more than very occasionally. Uh, The whole time. And all the the local people say, all the local people say, yeah, that, you know, the military stops and frisks us every time we come through the checkpoint. But these boats somehow manage to go even in the middle of the night. Uh, How is that? So clearly. And again, you know. If you are, um, you know, a, a, a corporal or a sergeant or even a second lieutenant somewhere, you know, you know, on some little post along the Mikai River, are you going to give your life to stop some subset subsidiary of Huntil Duarte, mm-hmm. some dissident group that might not even have the same name next year? Are you going to give your life to stop them from getting a few tons through? Mm-hmm. Or are you just going to, is it easier just to turn your back there in the middle of nowhere with no support? You, I, I know it's, a, it's, it's an impossible question, but it's a, how do you get to a stage where the military or the authorities say, all right, now, okay, we, we've got the support of central government. We've got the support of the whole institution. So we are now going to stop these boats. We are now going to get, mm-hmm. I, I guess it's just, it, it's a situation of uh, increase in the military, but also these, these sort of, let's say, social institutions in these towns to reduce the production of the illicit goods. I, I don't right. know. And, and the military alone can't do that. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, what Colombia has relied on heavily, and US aiding Colombia has relied on very heavily, is to have the Blue Water Navy, the people out and off the mm-hmm. coasts. Uh, actually doing most of the interdiction uh, once they have the intelligence. So that boat travels happily down the Naya River, but it has a much greater chance of being stopped in the Pacific. Mm -hmm. Um, Colombia claims to have interdicted more than 500 tons of cocaine last year, which is pretty stunning, if true. Um, Maybe less than half of the total, but it's still a significant um, uh, portion. But a large, large, large fraction of that happened out in the open ocean uh, and not in areas where people live and where the military is mixed in with the population. 
I always wonder what happens to the the, the what they empower. <laughs> I don't know because I, I'd like to, you know, I, we do see the images of them, the, the sort of incinerating blocks and so on. Mm. There does seem to be so much. I'd love to know. <laughs> I do think some ends up back in the hands of its original owners. I think, uh, <laughs> but let's. I've never seen good reporting on that. Yeah, it, uh, it does seem to go into a bit of a black hole, though, doesn't it? Yeah, I've, I once got in touch with uh, I don't know one of these uh, one of these government agencies and was sort of pinballed around. <laughs> different places nobody really wanted I, i'd have to find someone willing to speak off the record <laughs> on it's that something one. that you'd want to be utterly transparent about you'd almost want to have public burnings where you weigh everything and account mm -hmm. for all of it but no it, it, it's i mean some of it's kept as evidence for cases and things like that there's a an interesting just here in the united states you know our border agency the customs and border protection there was an inspector general report last year uh, about the disposition of seized cocaine at the U.S.-Mexico border. And yeah, there's some cocaine from 15 years ago that is apparently still in the evidence room, uh, just sitting there uh, waiting to be used uh, for evidence, I mean. Does, does cocaine go bad? After does it have a sell-by date? I have to imagine it does, but yeah, yeah it's probably a pretty stable chemical, though. <laughs> All right. Well, you now you touched on something again in that in the sort of last bit we we're talking about the people afraid of the security forces, and this, mm -hmm. of course, has surged in recent years. I think there's always been a degree of uh, of fear, uh, sure. aside from when you get sort of I don't know these efforts of the soldiers giving you the thumbs up on the highways and so on. Right. I said, uh, you know, okay, that's fine. But I, I think in the, in the, in this, the spectrum of the, you know, the Parro Nacional, there has been a huge increase and lack right. of confidence in state, not just the security forces, but institutions. I mean, you see any you see any uh, opinion poll, and, and and people have lost their faith, and there's all sorts of uh, issues behind this. But the military and the police, I feel less safe when I see more, you know. And right hmm. where I live, in a very well healed hmm. part of town, in fact, you visited, we've got more and more uh, military police around. It's because there have been, you know, a couple of it's like phone snatchings by guys on motorcycles. But it suggests to me that there's greater insecurity and I don't feel safe with these guys with big weapons. I don't know. I mean, what did, when you were out in Sumapaz, do the people feel less safe? I mean, it's it's a kind of it's it's kind of a, a delicate line there because it's always been sort of in this uh, tug of war between sides and 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 geographically located between the city and and then of course the altiplano and then the jungle. Yeah, I mean, some military or, or and some security forces uh, uh, frighten the population, and others are really just sort of scarecrows. I mean, if they catch you doing something bad, then you're in trouble. But otherwise, you've got you know a 19 year old kid uh, with a gun almost as big as they are, you know, doing the best they can, and you don't really they don't really instill fear. So in Sumapas, I mean, we did go through two rounds, two ranks of checkpoints. Uh, uh, on our way to the town of San Juan. And I don't know if they made people feel any safer. They, you know, they But again, like scarecrows, they're sort of showing the state presence on the road. Um, as you go further south and as you get closer to Meta, we were told that there is more presence of FARC dissidents. Gente uh, Duarte's people are, are moving up and moving in. At least we went about two and a half hours south to San Juan Sumapaz and there, uh, People, it, it's something on people's minds that, you know, the dissidents are nearby, but we did not hear that there'd been a real wave of threats yet. Uh, but there's concern that, yeah, they're growing and they're coming. Um, it is a key corridor uh, into Bogota. Um, and just, you know, a couple of checkpoints with, you know, high mountain brigade soldiers uh, in their tents, um, you know, are not probably enough to stop that from becoming a corridor uh, between Bogota and Meta. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's there, it seemed to be something that was still incipient. It was something that, you know, with a team of people from the mayor's office and with, you know, uh, uh, that was about all we needed to feel safe enough just driving with a member of Congress and nothing, you know, untoward happening. Um, the U.S. Embassy did not send personnel along with us because they had enough security concerns not to bother, but they're they're pretty cautious. Yeah, they, they are on the side of caution and, and fair, fair play from their position. Um, 
Now, we, I think, and it's time to address this, is we are coming to the end of 2021, and it was it 70-something massacres already yeah. this year, uh, a huge increase in environmental defenders being killed and murdered uh, with two years in a row, 2019, 2020, by Global Witness. They've uh, reported on that, Colombia, the worst in the world. Uh, human rights defenders on the front line. Yeah, the uh, last UN report had about 150 so far this year. Uh, in, uh, signees of the peace accords, uh, so integrating uh, ex-guerrillas uh, are, are on the list as well. So you allude to the fact you're doing old school human mm -hmm. rights work again. Uh, what does that mean? You're down on the ground saying to people, be careful? <laughs> no, I mean, it, it's, you know, my... The longtime colleague, Winifred Tate, um, who worked at WOLA like 20 years ago and then went on to be an anthropologist, her first book was called, it was an anthropology study of the human rights movement in Colombia, and she titled it Counting the Dead. Um, and it feels like that's what we're doing again. We're, we're either counting the dead or taking really painful testimonies uh, from people who've been victims, newly victimized victims. Now, yeah, I mean, we've been talking about killings of social leaders and killings of ex-combatants uh, the whole time. I mean, since since the peace accord was signed, but we've seen that number increase steadily year on year on year. Um, but during that early period of the peace process, 2015 to 2018 or so, we had this luxury of talking about proposals, you know, state presence in the countryside and crop substitution and, um, you know, how we can improve the government's protection programs and how we can improve participation and make Colombia uh, help, help Colombia on its path to becoming a quote unquote normal country. And we've set, definitely seen a reversion there. We are right back. It, this trip felt like it could have been in, uh, you know, 2009. We're once again going to places where people have been victimized and hearing testimonies. And of course, in Cali was some of the most vivid. Mm. And those doing the victimizing were either the police or armed civilians alongside the police. That's, I mean, that to me is, is shocking. And when I see people, this, when you talk about this, I see people defending, and what's the, the guy's name who has been sort of the poster boy for that, Andres Escobar, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, for taking out his gun and sort of saying, I'm defending my, my neighborhood. I was like, well, no, this is why you have a, a police force. Mm -hmm. you know, this is mm -hmm. why. And so bigger questions need to be asked <laughs> around this and an armed society. And if a police force force is behaving as if it can't control a situation, uh, why is this going on? And now, of course, he's, he's, uh, he's uh, very much... Uh, changed his image someone must have got got onto him to say you know to, to and he's he's now at town halls talking about security and and you know support for the police he's launching himself a political career it yeah. seems like yeah. it i think he might end up being like you know the vp candidate for maria fernanda Cabral <laughs> because he's always at her town hall meetings mm -hmm, well. mm -hmm. but with her recent haul of five percent of desired votes we're still there's we, we can still hope that she won't get anywhere she gets a lot of media though doesn't she, she gets yeah. a a lot of because she's that figure who says we expect her to say something outrageous. Uh, we had one of those in 2015, and he turned out turned out pretty well for him. Yeah, uh, yes, yeah, so we don't. Yeah, let's let's. It doesn't bear thinking about. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> but we all know who she is, and right. that's the reality. And right. that's I mean, you know, bad press is press, especially when you're on TV the whole time especially when you, you know, like you say, you're out in San Juan de Sumapaz or you're out in Santander de Quilechao, who they most likely won't recognize an Alejandro Gaviria or a Sergio right, Fajardo, right, but right. they will know who Cabal is. And that's right. the great big difference. Why are you going to vote for an unknown face? And that's, it's terrifying. And that sort of leads us in. It's like 2022 is a phenomenally important uh, and mm -hmm. worrying year. Uh, so much so that in, in the course of, if I do any consulting or articles, I wonder if I want to be here with my family. I mean, that's the truth. I'm not going right, to lie. Right. It, it, what do you feel? I mean, you said it's a sobering trip down to Colombia and we've gone, we, it's like coming, being here in 2009. 
I mean, 2022, are we expecting more of the same, increased uh, problems, violence? Uh, what could you say from your you, you know, professional and personal standpoint? Yeah, I mean, if you just want to talk about the security environment around the campaign, it's pretty fair to guess that in parts of the country where traditional political elites, where large landowners, political bosses, la maquinaria, have always run the show, if they feel threatened by upstarts, say, you know, be that Petro or even somebody from the center left who's not associated with them, they don't fight clean. They don't fight clean. Um, and uh, you're, you, know, you th- add that non-clean fighting element, uh, which perhaps, you know, Cabal and Andres Escobar and those guys uh, uh, represent, and add that to this mix of small arm groups who are also fighting for control of territory and, and corridors, and they want friendly faces in the mayors, or rather in the, we're not doing mayor elections this year, they want friendly faces in Congress and in the presidency. Yeah, there could be some real violence, probably not in the more solidly governed parts of the country, like, you know, the major cities. Uh, but again, smaller cities, uh, rural areas that have long been under the sway of yeah, traditional political powers, that could be quite ugly. So so kind of, like you say, the places that voted in favor of the peace accord, the ones that were so hammered during mm-hmm. the hardest years and continual years of the conflict are the ones likely again to suffer the most. Or places that voted no in the plebiscite also where, you know, the the traditional parties have often ruled and people are quite conservative. But if there is a populist upstart in... I don't know, uh, Pamplona, Norte Santander, which is a place that voted heavily no. If there's a populist upstart or somebody on the left or center left who's doing quite well uh, and they have a movement, I mean, they would be quite in danger there. I don't mean to pick on Pamplona. That's the first place that came to mind. It's curious. I always looked at Pamplona and thinking it's student city. How come? I mean, but then you've got mm-hmm. your traditional parties and the the, the, the border area and the, the financial clout of Cucuta and, you know. I mean, it's remarkable. We were just talking about how Colombia's state is absent from so many areas, right? You know, maybe you'll see a military patrol come through. But what's not absent? You know, go a month before the elections and look at where the political parties uh, are quite the national political parties uh, have quite you know a presence and a base and are able to put banners and, and campaign freely, and you know that relies on support from traditional power, whoever that is in that area. And if that power feels threatened by what looks to be a bit of a wave election that could see some really dramatic change in who runs things, yeah, they're not going to fight clean. I I, uh, I talked recently to. The environmental defender Isabel Cristina Zuleta, mm-hmm. who's sort of Rios Vivos and Ituango, the dam there. She's from Antioquia, Ituango yeah. and she, mm-hmm. she was displaced age 14. She must be in her 20s now. Uh, and she said that, you know, the traditional political parties around where she campaigns the most, so the Cauca River, are feeling threatened. Hence no doubt. The, the 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 rise in 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 assassinations in that area and of course the back and forth between different uh you know armed groups. So I mean she does mention it. It's like we are threatening their status quo. And right you kind of hope that the threats can be just worked out uh, peacefully, you know, through a political means. But as you say, they're not going to play clean. Yeah, Yeah. they're not going to play clean. So I I worry about 2022. And, you know, I'm not a a Petrista at all, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, but because I find him noxious on so many (laughs) fronts. And don't get me wrong, I think he represents something important in the country. I thought he was a good senator. Um, It worried me, like in the first year of his mayorship, how many people exited you know his his mayor you know his 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 government and so yeah i worry that gustavo petro is not paying enough attention to strengthening institutions and is looking for ways to do end round uh, end runs around them i mean if he's elected it won't be the end of the world for colombia but uh yeah, his personality is not managerial. Let's it's, that it way. really isn't. He doesn't. Yeah. He doesn't know how to manage people, as you say. Uh, I ended up working for I don't know, a couple of weeks for him <laughs> way back oh. in the day. I interviewed him once as well, and and he doesn't come across well. 
he doesn't come mm-hmm. across showing any humility as well. And that's right. That's right. something that's quite, you know, quite you see a lot key. of leaders in Latin America right now who are like that. Yeah. Mm. And, and I, you get, well, the inevitable uh, comparisons with AMLO uh, in Mexico, mm-hmm. Obrador, the left uh, populist. Yeah. yeah. Inevitable. But I just, I just sort of concern if it's him and someone else and, I don't know. It's almost definitely going to be him in the second yeah. round unless something dramatic happens. But yeah, uh, I mean, yeah. I asked a lot of people this when I was obviously in my few days in Colombia and, and sort of the, I heard two things. Um, one, you know, th- that <clears throat> Petro, either Petro could beat anybody from the center, center left. No, I'm sorry. Petro could be beaten by anybody from the right, the center right or the center left but not somebody from the far right, like Cabal, that he probably could be Cabal. Although I had some people say, oh, I don't know, people are really afraid of Petro. Mm-hmm. But then there, I heard others say that, no, Colombians want change so badly that Petro could beat uh, somebody like Fajardo or Gaviria and probably could beat uh, somebody from the far right. Um, although the general consensus was like somebody from the center right, probably not from Uribismo, uh, who's felt safe enough for a majority of Colombians could probably still be Petro in the second round. Um, But I don't know how they govern, but they could probably beat him. Yeah. That kind of feeling of security that, that that got Duque in. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's it, isn't it? You know, and I know people is that people fear chaos and disorder, even if it, they need change really badly. And you've got, you know, Alvaro Uribe the other day, Making when when Petro talked about the expropriation, I think of Uribe's lands, you know, to make it productive. Oh, <laughs> yeah, it was quite amusing. <laughs> he, said, he said all of these things because he said, you know, you're not even growing yuca or platanos; it's just for your <laughs> unproductive cattle farming. And of course, he got up and said, "I'm a finquero de, de you know, de, yeah, I don't know what do you say? I'm a, I'm a, I'm a landowner. I'm a cattle farmer. But that's my profession. This is communism. This is this. And of course, it resonates. It. And and mm-hmm. And Uribe, well, probably both messages resonated. Yeah. yeah, Uribe, you know, he's got that thing as well. He speaks and he dominates the headlines and dominates mm-hmm. the national mm-hmm. conversation. So it's always a concern these things. And I, you sort of wish that. Well, okay, Petro, that's quite amusing. It's got you back on the headlines, but you're now also, you know, you'll be driving people to the other side uh, with that kind of thing. Especially, you know, people even with a small amount of land who think, "Oh, oh, this is communism. This is this will be Venezuela. The Castro Chavista revolution mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is coming." Yeah, I guess expropriation is a dirty word. It yeah. is a dirty word, and that. Mm-hmm. And, but but can't we just put it as agrarian reform? You know, point one on the peace accord. We do need this, right? We do need a better yes, land management in Colombia. I think the, the be all and end of problems and ultimately maybe you can you know hammer away at the rural issue in in, in a country that's 80 now 80 percent urban uh, so a lot of your voters are in cities yeah so i around around your travel and you know we can't take up too much more of your time but around your travel what do people tell you that they want in these particularly sort of dangerous like dangerous these these uncertain areas where we don't know who the, who's in, entirely in command ruling this is sort of minimal state presence and we say state with inverted commas is like a little village clinic and a cup a, a police if station that, yeah. if that mm-hmm. uh what do people tell you that they want how do they see the solution to and the violence in, that, that is in their community and everybody really starts with the peace accord i mean this was laid out already in like a hundred something pages uh, what was or 200 something pages? What was the blueprint? Um, and you know, people say right off the bat that we have to implement this accord. This was designed for our zones of the country. Um, and you know, people, even people, the subtext of what people say is we need comprehensive state presence, we need our government to actually be here. We don't ever see anybody from our government, we are here on our own, abandoned. Now, if you are in a conflictive area. Uh, if you can't just get up and say, we need the state here. Um, also, you know, frankly, people say they want the state, but they're quite suspicious of this state. Um, but if you were to get up in, you know, in Buenos Aires, Cauca and say, we need the government here, uh, you know, you might as well just step in front of a moving bus. That's suicide. You can't say that. So what people will say, in addition to implement the peace accord, is we need a humanitarian accord. We need all armed actors to at least agree to a series of humanitarian minimums that gets the, the, the civilian population out of the conflict. 
people talk about that a lot in Choco. There's a very advanced uh, proposal. There's similar in uh, Arauca, I think, Catatumbo, and they were talking about it in Cauca. That's attractive. I have no idea how you enforce it. As soon as somebody violates that and kills a civilian, I mean, where do you go? You just say, don't do that again, and you move on, basically. Um, there's no enforcement mechanism for it. But ultimately, I mean, some verification mechanism would be good. Some umpire who says, no, Frente Carlos Patino, you did this and you were wrong, uh, would be, I guess, useful. But that's where people are right now. If you can't publicly call for the state or you simply distrust this, this state, you know, have General Vargas send some police in, that might not make anything better. If you distrust this state, that's what you're reduced to calling for, um, a humanitarian accord. It's... It's quite desperate, isn't it? This a humanitarian accord. Let's just—it's it's last ditch. Yeah, it really it's a is. Last resort. Oh, well, and then finally, then how do you? I mean, okay, we can blame a lot on COVID. We can blame, and, mm-hmm. and this government mm-hmm. will continue to do so, and then the next one will blame this government, and and you know, you know how it works. <laughs> but the four years of Duque, we can't. We can't say but there's any measure of success here. The, the, you know, the, the peace accord has been weakened. It has been strangled for money. Yes, right. COVID has played a part, but it was already on the way down the drain with, with this, this government mm-hmm. surrounding himself with people that he feels superior to. And so there's no, no, there's no pushback. There's clearly no pushback. You know, he's got yes, a, man, you mean, yeah, yeah, he's got a, mm-hmm. he's got a whole room of people say, yes, you're right. Uh, and so there's there's just no debate, is there? And and then and only recently there's been the 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 you know the Colombian state has been found responsible for this the, the, the most dreadful uh, attack on the journalist uh, Jeanette Bedoya, the international uh, inter-American court on human rights. Twenty one or twenty years later, mm-hmm. and Duque cynically stands up and says, "Yes, we will." We will adhere to everything. It's this is what this is right. No journalist, no woman must undergo or must be affected, must be attacked on this level. And you're like, it, these are. I kind of say this these is the same young. government that had its representative at the American court get up and turn off their Zoom and and, and in the middle of one of the hearings earlier this year because they thought the judges were unfair. unfair. Is, are we are we still in a playground? I mean, is this, it was you're not playing fair. It's, this is a <laughs> serious human rights abuse carried out with the inherent corruption of the state. You know, the 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 prison, mm-hmm. the military must have looked another way. And these are the same guys that we have now. So I, I don't know. I I worry about this. And I, the word I want to keep coming back to, and you that you use was sobering. Sobering, mm-hmm. your sobering trip and so to bring this to a close because you've spoken so you know amply about the situation to bring this to a close how do you feel what are your overarching feelings for colombia in the in the short term the immediate uh, future you know in the medium to long term depending on the 22 election result i feel okay uh not great but i, I do see I think civil society is, despite all the threats, super organized. I see a lot of new faces in politics, uh, maybe even more than we have in the United States, who are reformist. But they've got to weather a real storm in the next few years. Uh, This lack of resources, this simulacrum of a government, this uh, increasing polarization, a huge number of people in poverty, worsening inequality. I mean, they've got to get through this. And that's going to happen at a time of increasing, vastly increasing uh, uh, violence, uh, violence against civilians, some of it committed by state actors with impunity. So, yeah, they've got to get weather this storm and it, whether it's whether they manage to or not will determine whether they recover quickly and get a sort of even close to the path that the peace accords had set five years ago. All that said, I have to say a word about my government. I don't think that I, I was not given any impression that the United States government gets this. Mm. I think that they are captured is too strong a word, but extremely strongly influenced by their counterparts in the Duque government and in the Colombian armed forces, security forces, uh, given this feeling that, nope, this is still a success story. There's a few bumps in the road, but everything's okay. This peace accord was badly designed anyway, so it's better that we just go with legality and 
and uh, I'm not sure if they really capture the extent to which the because they don't go to these areas, the, the extent to which the Colombian state is becoming just sort of a shadow or a you know a pantomime of a state in a lot of these areas. Uh, I hope they get that sense, but I don't think they're getting good information. And at the same time, uh, here in the United States, and particularly in our defense sector, the war on terror. It's around still, but it's not really a thing as, uh, to the extent that it was. I mean, the pullback from Afghanistan certainly underlines that. The real concern that people talk about every day now is a competition with China and to a lesser extent with Russia. Um, and if you see uh, Latin America as a chessboard for great power competition, like we did during the Cold War again, your instinct is to cling desperately to the few countries that are willing to completely work with you, give you full military access and deny that access to China and other powers. And Colombia checks all those boxes, which makes them even less likely to want to challenge Colombia on issues that actually are, if allowed to fester, are going to make Colombia even less stable. So in the name of stability, uh, they're actually failing to see a lot of the uh, elements of instability in Colombia. Wow. Uh, we never, I mean, I never really uh, got the impression that the, this, the new, the Biden administration was going to pay too much attention to what's going on in Colombia. Uh, it does seem like a bit of a poison chalice as well. I mean, you, you, it's, uh, <laughs> in truth, I mean, it's, it's such a, yeah. there's such yeah. a complex issue. And, you know, when you've got, Venezuela alongside, you said the China, the Russia, of course, the pullout with their Afghanistan, Colombia falls far down the pecking order. Uh, of course, then the migrants up at the border, which is such a, a mm -hmm. visible mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. issue. I mean, it's, it's so tangible for many people. And that's, that's the great big difference. Colombia is you know, seen now You've got Venezuela away. on fire. You've got 200,000 migrants showing up at the US-Mexico border every day, uh, every month, sorry. Uh, you've got uh, you know, Central America crime out of control. Mexico has a higher homicide rate than Colombia. Colombia still maybe, you know, when you're looking at the chessboard from a distance, looks like an island of stability. I mean, Duque is a conservative, but he's not an authoritarian populist like Bukele or Bolsonaro or Chavez or Maduro. Um, so, yeah, Colombia, you're right. It doesn't rise to the top. Uh, maybe you see a lot of blinking lights on the dashboard, but other countries already have, you know, the, the car is actually on fire. Um, so yeah, it doesn't rise. And so when the police kill 40 something people in a couple of months of protests and, and disappear more, uh, you may not be as forceful as you should be in your criticism of the police's performance. Worrying. Yeah. Definitely worrying. Well, on that note, I think we'll bring it to an end. Uh, I was going to be cheerful. <laughs> well, I, you know, I don't have a lot to be cheerful about. Uh, you know, when I think of you know consulting and stuff, you're like, I don't really see too much light at the, at the moment. Uh, but, mm -hmm. but we have to discuss it. I mean, we have to get it out there in the in the public fora uh, to to be able to discuss these things. And if it means we have to say it in English on a podcast or into you know international publications, then so be it. Absolutely, uh, because from beyond and offices such as yourself at the Washington office and at the, on Latin America, you you do put pressure. Uh, you know, there is pressure applied, and then of course with mm -hmm. Representative McGovern, this is a, this is a this is good news that he's coming down because it does. I'm very glad that he did. Yeah, yeah. I, I, Especially you, I missed time. the press conference because I had another appointment, <laughs> but uh, uh, which I probably could. The, the, the live stream is online uh, at a couple places, so yeah. oh, I might watch it. But uh, it's, it's now passed on. But so listen, let me take this moment to say. Uh, you know, thank you so much to Adam Isaacson, to yourself, Director for Defense Oversight. I have to read that out. I have to look at that title so I don't get it wrong. It's it's quite. I don't funny. know what to call myself. It's the best <laughs> I've come up with because I try to oversee military assistance. All right, there you go. So, well, thank you so much for your time for coming on this the 400th episode of Columbia Calling and. Well, I hope when you're next down in Colombia, you have a little bit more time to spend, uh, you know, with with us lowly freelance journalists and discuss we'll do. <laughs> discuss a bit more the situation. And hopefully, next trip is is more positive. Let's say. I hope so too, and it will be soon. Now that now that 
you know, I broke the seal. We can travel more often. I'll be there in a few months. All right. Very good. If not less. Excellent. Well, thank you again for your time. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode 400. Uh, it's it's uh, quite a landmark to get this far. Uh, mm, I realize I how you that, do that. I don't know either. I think the first 150 weren't listened to. So <laughs> I'll be, I'll be honest about it, but it's, it's great to keep going. And I've been given this real boost uh, with uh, the journalist Emily Hart doing the news segment each each uh, that's right yeah she's it's great really, it's yeah. really you know given us some sort of impetus and so I'm very so grateful. You're, you're weekly though right you, yeah we are weekly yeah do you ever miss a week or are you just like clockwork well we we take a couple of weeks off at Christmas <laughs> but that's <laughs> it I mean that's but you yeah. announced that in advance you know yeah. uh, but no we because I'll week out it's it I mean it's, we have woolas whenever I can so it's sometimes it's like oh, no no too busy sorry I think I have less to do than you. <laughs> I think you're busier than me covering the border, Mexico, Central America, the rest of the Americas. I think you're busier than I am. Uh, and now that I both of my back. kids are at school, I, I have time again. So yeah, it's, that's uh, great. That's it's great. Yeah, mine's at school too now, but mine's older though, 17. So it's oh, yeah. they, a lot they, easier. They, he hides in his cave. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. But thank you again for this. It's been, as always, uh, an excellent conversation. And you know, we've really yeah, put it great into to context. see you. Yeah, uh, you too. And so, uh, thank you to everyone for tuning in. And uh, this has been episode four hundred. I've been Richard McCall talking to Adam Isaacs. And thank you, everyone, and goodbye. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.